International art dealer Park West Gallery is proud to present our new podcast series, Behind the Artist. Each episode will be talking to popular contemporary artists to learn the stories and inspiration behind their extraordinary artwork and fascinating careers. Due to his below-your-hair-back charismatic personality, it's pretty easy to overlook the fact that the artist Michael Goddard is a truly gifted and supremely dedicated professional. Today he ranks among the most famous and collected artists worldwide, and people from all walks of life delight in the adventures of his cast of characters, starring olives and strawberries and grapes and cherries, among other garnishes, all engaged in various sorts of riotous mayhem. As a visual storyteller, though, Goddard is pretty much unmatched, and each of his paintings presents a slice of our contemporary culture, blending with a little humor, some romance, some poetry. Goddard's road to fame and success was not an easy one, however, and in this segment, he's remarkably candid about the trials and tribulations of his youth, his professional challenges along the way, the tragedy of losing his young daughter to cancer, and his resolve to make a difference in the world through his extraordinary philanthropic efforts. He also delves into the serious side of his artwork and gives us a glimpse into his creative process and his very hard-earned technical chops. This is Behind the Artist. I'm Maura Shapiro, and I hope you enjoyed this journey into the life and art of Michael Goddard. So, Michael Goddard, welcome to the program. Thank you, sir. So nice to have you here with us today. Uh, thanks for taking time to be here. Um, one of the things I love to start with, um, and I get a lot of responses from people, you know, saying it's it's a, it's an interesting topic for them, is your uh, your past and the pathway that you took to being where you are today. Because you're an extraordinarily successful artist, uh, you've achieved an amazing amount of success in your life, and it hasn't been easy. I know it's been a long road for you. You know, it's a long way to the top if you want to rock and roll. That's right. <laughs> right? That's right. That's right. So um, I've done a lot of events with you, and you've talked, you know, a lot about your work and your experiences, but you don't talk that much about your past. And I know you had kind of a hard childhood, right? Yeah, you know, it was kind of tough. But, um, you know, talking about that path, uh, I would say that um, I would tell my daughter, who's 23 now, she says, Dad, I don't understand why these odd things are happening to me that make no sense. And sometimes, you know, people will, will say, when it rains, it pours, et cetera, et cetera. But what you find out in life, as far as my philosophy goes, is that all these seemingly random things that happen to you throughout your life uh, eventually turn out to be the most well-written story ever written, which is your life. And it seems, it seems when you look back, it's, it's the only time when they say, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. But when you look back, what you find out is that everything had to happen exactly the way it did, just the way it did, to take you to the path that you're on. And I am so much a huge believer in that. You know, I believe somewhat in fate and in destiny and things like that. But I think all those things create who you are, obviously. And so I tell her, don't worry about it. All these things that don't make sense, one day will be your movie. And, there's, and, there's, and it could not have been written any different than it was. And my, my, uh, my childhood was rough. My, um, uh, we had basically everyone in my family's poor. I was the first grandchild. And my father uh, worked for an insurance company, and he met my mother. And uh, when he was about 33, he got a very, very rare muscle disease. My father was very athletic. He was actually invited to play for the White Sox, but back in the 50s and 60s, they paid about $10,000 a year. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so my grandparents said, no, you're going to college, Carl. 
So anyway, so uh, but my father got sick. He went from in a year he went from being 150 pounds to almost 300 pounds, wow. and the steroids kept him alive. And those steroids over the years caused many problems for him. And by the time he passed away um, in 2000, uh, he had had over 78 surgeries. Wow. And um, how old was he? He was he was he was uh, 63 when he passed. And, um, and, you know, I think my, my father never got to see me make it because really, you know, the big year for me was around 2002 to 2004 when I really, you know, uh, put, my, put my life on the map. And I was always so sad about that, but yet at the same time, you know, I lost my daughter as well. And she, um, you know, he didn't have to see that, which I think is, you know, a wonderful thing. He spirited that. Yeah. But, so you um, guys but struggled financially. We, we struggled financially. Not yeah. only that, what happened was, and the reason I ended up in Vegas was that my grandparents lived in Vegas. My father was wheelchair bound and wasn't able to take care of himself. But he um, he had gotten addicted to the painkillers because he was in so much pain through all the surgeries and this muscle disease. And so he stopped talking, and he stopped talking for two years. And my mom just cracked and couldn't take it anymore. So she, you know, said, you know, we've got to go. So you know, this isn't going to work. So my father ended up moving to Las Vegas with my grandparents, and um, we just bounced around a lot as kids. And uh, so, you know, it was very difficult because my father lived in a different state. He, the only time I saw him was on my birthday and, and during the summertime. But that's kind of where that Vegas connection started was with me, um, you know, now with, with a lot of the Vegas themes in my uh, paintings. That was something very, very early on from visiting Vegas and seeing my grandparents back in the 60s. Uh, to my father living there. And then uh, things got a little bit more complicated in my teens, uh, just, well, just before my teens. I was around 10 years old, my mom remarried, and uh, she married some crazy psycho, and I'm not the only one who's had abuse as a child, but uh, very scary, very scary life. And, um, and again, it was, uh, it was sort of funny, but I think that, that uh, my stepfather, who I, you know, I don't know where he's at now, but uh, it's very, very abusive. and um, To you as well as your mom? Yeah, with me he was physically, very much physically abusive. And, um, and I did a documentary years ago, and we talked about you know, what was off limits and what was okay. And I said, listen, I said, um, I remember watching a Behind the Music with Janis Joplin. And Janis Joplin said, I never had a boyfriend, I never had steady friends, I never lived in the same house for very long. Because once I gave my life to the public, I became the public's and not my own. And I decided that once I became an artist and, you know, and I was going to tell a little bit about my life, it was either all or nothing. So I just said, my life's an open book. So I've been very, uh, very candid about uh, my past like I am now about, you know, some of the things that happened that's kind of shaped the way I am. And so I had this weird thing about money when I was a kid because Although I was, you know, covered with, you know, bruises all over my body uh, from my dad beating the shit out of me, I, uh, my family never stuck up for me because my stepfather started a company and uh, started to become, you know, wealthy, at least wealthy in terms of, you know, the type of, you know, childhood that I'd had, which was, you know, food stamps and welfare. And my father's disability, that was basically all we had. So um, uh, after that, I sort of had this, my, my stepfather would sort of, you know, uh, like to tell uh, other other people that um, or other family members, hey, you know, here's a here's a hundred dollars as a gift or this and that. So he's always passing on hundred dollar bills. Made a big impression on me because I really, you know, I sort of like uh, was very 
was very subconscious about you know my life and about you know I had no confidence whatsoever and um, I watched him and I said oh you know if you're if you're a jerk as long as you can make money no one's going to question who you really are and I knew the guy was an, an ass <laughs> but at the same time having money you know uh, hid everything from everyone else yeah, alleviated, it. alleviated it so at that point in my life um, to prove that you know just like with him when he would beat me or whatever, I promised I would not cry. When I, uh, when I went to school, I had to be the best at everything. I had to get the best grades of anyone in the school. I had to be the smartest one in the class. I had to do everything better than everyone else. It made me an overachiever. And as far as money goes, I just thought, you know, I have to make more money than anyone else I know. And eventually, I, you know, uh, later on in life, I kind of came to grips with that and realized that that was a harsh mistake and then went the other way. and. Uh, gave up, uh, well, everything I had and kind of like took the monk's road and, and I was in a marriage that I'd had in my, when I was about 30. And at that time I had a yacht and I had uh, uh, RV and, and a really nice RV, the, the Prevost, the million dollar kind and, you know, and just it, loaded with money but absolutely was, miserable. Was this from the uh, engineering gig or the, the art? No, it was, it was actually a little bit before, right after the engineering gig because I, I loved math ever since I was a kid and, I was, and my mother taught my sister and I to absolutely love to learn. So we were both reading and doing puzzles and way beyond our years at a very, very young age. In fact, um, when, through, from kindergarten on to about fourth or fifth grade, uh, they didn't have uh, what they have now, the, the magma courses, they were called the, the classes for the gifted. And so they would pull, pull me out of first grade, come get me at about two o'clock in the afternoon, and I would go and sit with the sixth graders just for an hour or two of math. Because I really, I really loved it. And I thought, oh, everybody loves math. But, uh, and at that time I was drawing too, and drawing was the way that I would, uh, would, would make friends. So between the two of them, always being the new kid in class after the divorce, and having to make friends, I found that art was the vehicle that could break the ice for me. Right. And I was extremely shy. Right. And, but I never let anybody inside. And so I, you know, part of that humor that I have even today sort of disguises the torment that's, that's behind it all. But I also think it's not normal for a person to uh, work, you know, um, 20 hours a day and sleep on four, you know, four hours a day sleep or whatever and get four hours a day sleep. Um, there has to be something that really drives them, and for me, it wasn't a, it wasn't a uh, a desire for success as much as it was a fear of failure, mm -hmm. and that drove me to the point when I got any time I was in a competitive situation, I had to find a way to excel at it, not just excel, but be the best that there ever was, and so sometimes. Um, that could be used in a very positive way and really drive you to do things that are much more beyond. I don't believe, you know, the president or some athlete, the, I believe there's a lot of natural gifts, but you still, even if you're born with a natural gift, you have to, you have to hone it in, yeah. you know. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so, you know, all in all, it was a very rough childhood, and it wasn't until probably um, maybe the last 10 years that I truly can say that I'm a happy, that I'm a happy person. Before that, I just, I just and I still have the same attitude that, Basically, everyone's broken in some way. I don't ever want anyone to feel sorry for me because, no matter what tragedy I've, you know, uh, had to, uh, what obstacle I've had to endure or overcome in my life, there's always people who've had it so much worse. I mean, just like right now, we're sitting in a place where if you look off the docks and you see how some of these people live, I realize how completely blessed I am, and that there was a reason for all this. And um, you know, so 
uh, in that drive to uh, in that drive to want to succeed, um, I wanted to know everything I could and have every weapon in my arsenal to make to do to do the best I could, and you know that eventually uh, culminated in me doing art for a living. So, so do you think that? Um your motivation, your high degree of motivation came from your stepfather? You said you, you felt like you had to please him, or it was just something that was in, in, internal, that you felt well, like you had to just achieve it for your own satisfaction? I believe the latter is correct. I, I don't believe it, because I really, I really hated him. I despised him. And, um, and it was very difficult, because I come from a very strict um, religious parents, and you know, it was forgive 70 times 7, what he instilled in me was the fact that you know uh, that you could achieve anything because he was you know a country boy from Arkansas, cotton picker, and you know uneducated, only only had a seventh grade education, but he came he became very successful. So that he's the one that actually taught me hard work, and as a little frail hundred pound seventh grader, I remember you know having to work for his company, which was a roofing company, carrying 100-pound shingles that were that weighed more than I did, you know, up a ladder, and I was afraid of heights. Yeah. But, uh, you know, so that was one aspect of it. He really, that's one thing I, I, have to, I have to say that I really benefited from him. Um, and uh, the, other, the other thing, the other side of it was more the darker side, which was that I figured that maybe money could hide, you know, who who I was the inside my, my insecurities as far as feeling like you know I was I was nothing and never gonna amount to anything and so driving myself harder because I always had this feeling that I wasn't anybody never was going to be anybody maybe I could at least pretend that I was somebody to the rest of the world and you know and then eventually I when I turned that around and said that I actually despised money it gave me a new uh, a new enlightenment and you know, and, and maturity that said, listen, you know, money is really nothing. Nothing, it's like that movie, A Beautiful Mind, where he says, you know, nothing has any value until you add, until you give it a value. So um, it's, you know, having a great mind or having a, uh, or having money or all those things really don't mean anything to you unless you equate it with something, unless you give it that value. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that, that what I did was in, in my business now, because I really don't care whether I make money. I'm painting because I want to paint things that I enjoy. I'm doing it for myself now. Right. Um, I have the ability to say no. And you know as a business person, you can't negotiate if you can't say no. If you can't say no in a business conversation to a contract, you have no, you have nothing to stand on. Mm -hmm. So that, that ability to say, listen, I'd be just as happy in a cardboard box as I would in a huge mansion. Yes, it's nicer to be in a huge, huge mansion, but when it really comes down to it, it comes down to surviving, and you look at happiness uh, as a whole, you know, there's, there's guys, uh, there's families that live under the poverty level that, are, um, that have no money at all, that are very happy. Mm -hmm. You know, they have the things that they want, they have their family, they, you, have to, you have to learn in life what it is that really makes you happy. Right. So money's never been one of them, and I think that's the reason, sometimes maybe I gamble too much or whatever, in a way I sort of, you know, uh, you know, disrespect money or don't have respect for money because of the way that I think it tainted uh, my life in that if it hadn't have been for money, I've always thought since I was a child, and I can't get it out of my head, that that was the reason that he got away with what he did was because right. he was able to bribe people and keep everybody quiet. Right. And I thought, what a horrific thing. So yeah. therefore, I pointed the finger at money and said, that's the bad thing. Mm -hmm. So 
nowadays it gives me thick skin because if an art critic says, well, you know, uh, why should your painting, why should anyone pay, you know, a million dollars for a Goddard, uh, Goddard piece of art, you know, and it has to do with olives and whatever, I mean, I think to myself, well, why not? It's, it's how important it is to somebody and money's just a number. So, you know, um, yeah, so I, I think all those things, though, shaped my, and some of them I wish I could change, actually, more, of course, you know, you know, some of the things I wish I could go back and say, well, I wouldn't have had to struggle so hard if I hadn't gave up everything so many times. Well, don't we all feel that way? Yeah, you know, I mean, we really do, but yeah. you get to a point in maturity where you sort of look back in life and you can understand maybe why some of these things happen, not maybe why, but it's all about how we react to it. So I'm trying to take a positive Absolutely. Uh, attitude towards it. I'm curious about the um, distinction in your life between engineering and art, and I think that's fascinating. You know, most people are not right brain and left brain at the same time. And you went to art school, right, in California. Yes. Right? Yeah. You went to two very yeah. good prestigious schools, and you yeah. obviously worked hard because you got great chops. But well, yeah. how did it go from doing art, and then you said, oh, you like snapped your finger and said, I'm going to be an engineer, chemical engineer? Well, uh, no, it wasn't quite like that. I just, I, you know, was out on my own at a very young age because I wanted out of that crazy household. And uh, I got a job uh, doing basically just grunt work, uh, blue, you know, blue collar. I took a grinding wheel and had to get the rust out of the inside of these big pipes. And it was awful. And I was covered with red, you know, uh, scales. <laughs> and uh, and uh, anyway, I... I've always, been, I've always been able to draw. To, to me, I've always looked at, at looked at life mathematically. I mean, I break everything down into the most basic shapes into its basic form. I don't, I can't quite comprehend why someone says that a face is harder to draw than a circle, or uh, a car is harder to draw than something else. The only, to me, if I break everything down, and as a kid, the way I learned to draw was by copying other things. And to me, if I looked at something, even if it was a live drawing, all the information is right there, all the proportions, and they all break down into math. So if I was to draw your portrait right now, I could literally break you down and say, well, I've got two circles there, I've got an ellipse there, and you know, and, and everything comes together uh, mathematically. Um, and so for me, there was nothing more difficult than anything else to draw. So for me, I could draw anything. It just mattered, it was just a matter of how much effort did I want to put into it? You know, did I want to get, you know, um, uh, you know, to, to, what was it that I was trying to really accomplish? Because an artist is the only one who knows when he's done with a, with a piece of work. So, and, and again, you know, if you look at things that are pleasing to the eye and having to, because I'm very, uh, uh, invest, I have a very investigative and very, uh, I'm like a sponge. I want to just soak up everything and I question everything. I, I don't just want to know why something looks good. I, I want to break it down to the most element, elementary, you know, things and say, um, you know, uh, what is it? What is it really that makes this glass look like a glass? What is it that makes the, the light bend inside of a glass and those, those types of things? And so what I did was I took this, this job and I'd always been able to draw and uh, I drew a picture in the bathroom. I took a Sharpie. <laughs> I did a little bit of graffiti. <laughs> And I drew a cartoon character of Popeye, and it was ridiculous. But um, I got called into the the office where all the suits were, mm -hmm. and uh, well, how, they, old, how old are you at this time? I'm about maybe uh, 18, 19 years old. Okay, yeah, 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 18, 19 years old. Actually, no, probably closer to 20. 
And um, he calls me in the office and he says, um, uh, so there's some graffiti in, in one of the stalls and um, everyone around here says you're the artist and uh, we found our culprit. So I'm thinking, okay, I'm well, sorry, I'm, I'm fired, yeah. I'm done. Yeah. And they said, uh, tell you what, and my heart is beating so fast, I think I'm gonna have a heart attack at 20. <laughs> and the boss says, the big boss, the guy who used to walk around and you would get busy, you'd be watching for him all day long. Um, and he said, listen, he goes, uh, the engineering department needs someone to run blueprints and to trace some of the old blueprints and, and redo them. So what I did was I started tracing these old blueprints. This is before the CAD systems and all that. This is back in the, uh, the early, uh, early, early 80s. And uh, so I started tracing these blueprints, and um, I hung on to them. Hung on to a few of them. Uh, ended up getting a little art art gig for a little while, and um, uh, then I then I ended up leaving. I was going to become this is so random, but so true. I was going to become a police officer because it was a nice steady job, and I had a nice clean record. So I decided here's a job, and they were they were offering I don't know some outrageous amount of money. And so I said, uh, I said I'm going to become a police officer. I took all the I took all the courses, and I had two two more classes I had to take before I could actually enroll for the police academy. And I went to go visit my father in Vegas. And by this time, I was sort of living on my own, and um, uh, down in Southern California. And um, uh, my dad says to me, Hey, listen, if you go to college here, you can just live with me. You won't have to pay any rent or anything. I thought, Oh free ride are you kidding forget the police academy I'm going to college so I went to UNLV I lasted about a year and a half and um, and uh, I, I had too much fun gambling again that math thing about gambling drew me right in and then I missed school for a week or two and wow. my dad says we're not doing that you're going back to California now I went to California had no job trying to find art jobs everywhere and I found this place that was hiring draftsmen and uh, so I took those blueprints that I had from back in the day and I told them that I did the actual drawings and that I knew what I was doing. Mm -hmm. And I had no clue what wow. I was, I was literally just tracing what was yeah, done. Yeah. So you, you, <laughs> so, wor you wormed your way in. <laughs> I wormed my way in. In fact, this is so funny, I, I didn't even have a suit to wear. I had to borrow my cousin's suit who is about three inches taller than me. So, so or three inches shorter than me. Okay, and so I'm sorry, pants so my pants here. are like high waters, yeah. like Michael yeah. Jackson pants, right. a suit yeah. with the cups up to here. And I had no car. Um, so I went in there, I faked my way in, and I said, listen, I said, either I'm going to get fired in a week or two, but at least I'm going to have a paycheck, or I can fool these guys for as long as I can. So, so that's what I did. And I ended up staying with that company uh, for the next 13 years. Wow. And I worked my way up to where um, I was director of engineering. And what I did was I went to school at night. I worked during the day. I went to school at night. I took engineering classes that were all related to my field. So uh, we were involved a lot with metal. And uh, so I took metallurgy classes, geometric tolerancing, things like that. And I loved math. I really excelled at it. So I was able to grasp onto things very quickly. Um, and uh, so anyway, so I ended up doing that for 13 years. I was director of engineering. And then um, my boss, so I had the rest of my life sorted out. By then I had married. I had two little children. I was making great money. I was, you know, uh, under 30 years old and um, making almost $100,000 a year back in the 80s. I mean, it was, life was good. And the, the old man, we used to call him, the owner of the, the, the company was going to retire. The vice president was going to become president. I was going to become vice president of the company. I was set for life. So uh, the vice president comes in one day and he says, listen, I got to let you go. I'm like, what do you mean you got to let me go? He goes, well, the steel industry has took a dive. We have no clients. 
you're the highest paid employee I have, you're the best employee I have, but there's nothing for me to do. If I can't do sales, I gotta come in and run the engineering department. He says, Michael, I know you, you'll be fine. And of, of, of any employee I've ever had, I know that you'll be okay. And I'm like, I hated his guts. I wanted to like jump across and kill him. I'm like, what am I gonna do? They didn't give me any notice. It was literally, boom. I'd never been unemployed for 13 years. I was making great money. I have a mortgage, I have everything. And I thought, oh my God, what am I gonna do? Well, I was out of work for about three months. I took on my next job um, and got a job working downtown LA, uh, running a gear manufacturing plant. And, uh, and I did that, and then um, the riots happened. I was right in the middle of LA when the riots happened, and wow. it was a crazy, it was a crazy, crazy time. Uh, in fact, just really quick short story. This is how bad the neighborhood was that I worked in. So we would repaint the building every day at six o'clock because of all the graffiti <laughs> every night. And yeah, and one of my employees one day says, listen, um, can I borrow some tools and boss to go out here and uh, you know, change, the, uh, uh, change my batteries? My battery's dead and I bought a new battery. I said, yeah, sure. So he goes out there and he's changing the battery. Some guy comes up to the back of the car, starts taking the wheels off. He goes, hey, what the hell are you doing? He goes, if you're taking the battery, I'm taking the wheels. He goes, it's my car. <laughs> <laughs> That's how bad the neighborhood was. So from there, uh, God, how do I say this briefly? So from there, on the side, I was doing these little, air, I was airbrushing, and I was doing these little banners. And um, uh, there was this team that, uh, there's this soccer team, and I did a banner for them. I ended up doing a bunch of banners, and I saw this opportunity to start a company doing Little League banners and, and soccer banners. But my background is mass manufacturing. Mm -hmm. So I quit, my, I quit my, uh, my engineering job, and really couldn't, I was gonna get fired anyway, because they, they were basically, I, I had, uh, my, my heart wasn't in it. And the two hour drive to work, two hour drive back. Yeah, and so, traffic. yeah, oh, traffic was horrible. I was driving from Fontucky, as we call it, Fontana, San Bernardino, all the way to LA. And uh, so I came back, started this banner company, and uh, within about four to five years, um, I was in charge of about 120 artists that all worked in my building. And we did these little soccer banners, and, and but we did them nationwide. So I took it from being this little thing I started in my garage and I took on a teaching job at the same time. I actually taught art, fine art, uh, at uh, uh, Chino High School as a, uh, what do they call it? I think it was called an a APR class or something. It's for adults and, and kids. And, uh, but it got me through, so I had at least the $1,200 a month that was steady. Mm -hmm. And I still had a mortgage, and I still had uh, you know, kids to take care of. Wow. So I did that. And then uh, my, that business became uh, very, very lucrative. And, um, and I married someone who had money as well at that time. This is now my second marriage. And um, uh, we had done very, very well. She had made great money, I was making great money, but I, I hated my life. And I just thought, man, I can't, I can't continue doing this. Uh, we had a little falling out, and, and actually a big falling out. I had two kids, I told you at that time. So she was a little bit older than me. And you said about your first wife? Second. Wife, second wife, yeah. First wife was the one I had uh, the children. kids with, yeah. And so eventually we got divorced, yeah. yeah. And you took the kids, yeah. Yeah, so and she had the kids and then I would get to visit. But every weekend I would have the kids. And um, she goes, hey, she goes, I, I, I've already raised my kids. I, I'd prefer if when your kids came over to visit you, this is right after I married her, uh, she said, well, I prefer that when your kids come over to, uh, to, to visit that you guys stay in a hotel. <laughs> and I was like, what? And I said, no, I'm not gonna put up with that. She goes, well, I said, I'll divorce you. Like, I, I don't care if we're, we're married. And she goes, you can't divorce me. 
because you know we're millionaires and I had filed for bankruptcy put my new business in her name everything and so at that point um, uh, I just said you know what I that that's when I had the epiphany about money and about you know what I don't need money I could if I could sell pencils then I can sell something else whatever it is I need to figure out what it is I'm gonna really do I gave up the banner business which is still in existence today and um, and uh, left her with everything. I, I left the walked away of a, probably from over ten million dollars, wow. wow. and it had literally nothing but a, wow. but a van that uh, that was needed smogging so bad that it would literally shut down every machine in the place. <laughs> so um, I said, I got to do something. I don't care what I do. I'll go get a job at Knott's Berry Farm, which is exactly what I did. Mm -hmm. I went to Knott's Berry Farm. Now mm -hmm. I'm thirty years old. Went from being a millionaire to a pauper. They say you're way overqualified. Like, I don't care. And I'm like, I don't care. I've had a mortgage to pay. And that's like, you know. So, oh my gosh. So I worked at Knott's Berry Farm for one summer. And uh, like I said, I'm still Mr. Overachiever. So within three months, uh, there's a place that's called Commons Art. They run all the kiosks in every, uh, in every theme park uh, in the United States. There's 252 theme parks in the, in the U.S. And I broke the record for all of them, all across the whole country. And uh, they didn't want me to quit, but there was no business after summertime. Uh, so, so what were you doing? You were doing caricatures? Or I was something? doing caricatures. Yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. And this is how I learned how to get over my shyness, because yeah. I was still very, very shy, not right. the outgoing Goddard that you know now. <laughs> and uh, and I, was, uh, I was sitting there, and um, the first day I was there, like, like I said, I always break everything down to, why does this work? Uh -huh. And so I see four guys dressed in, you know, as loggers in front of the, the log ride. And eventually I became one of them with the blue pants and the checkered shirt. And um, I realized that it's a numbers game because what happens is they don't know, if, they all have a picture up that supposedly they've drawn or they have or have not, but it's all a matter of how many people they talk to. Because out of 100 people they talk to, one person is going to sit down and get a caricature done. If they walk, if, if 10,000 people go by and you talk to all 10,000, you're going to have uh, a lot more of a proportion. So I got over my shyness really quick, really quick. And I talked to every single person that came by. And I had to figure out how to engage them or connect with, with them within, you know, 20 seconds. Yeah. And then, you know, so then they, I get them to sit down on my chair. Well, Towards the end of this, that being said, this is really a, such a long story, but this is my life. So, but this is how this is how everything else started. So now I go to a place. Um, uh, I heard about a place called Cafe Tutu Tango. Cafe Tutu Tango was a place where artists would come in and they would paint as the entertainment for all the guests. There'd be three or four artists working, mm. and in exchange, they would give you uh, for doing that. They would give you like this uh, food coupons, and you could get free so tapas, appetizers. Was this like a, a like a uh, gallery? Like no, a, it was an outdoor like restaurant. Oh, it was a restaurant. It was yeah, a restaurant, yeah. yeah. They opened up one later on in um, uh, cool Universal. S yeah, it was really neat. Yeah. So as an artist, the other thing that was really cool is they didn't take much of your, uh, they didn't take much of your um, uh, money. Uh -huh. So if, an, if, a, uh, if a hostess sold one of your paintings, you got to display your, your paintings as many mm -hmm. as you wanted to. And there was hundreds and hundreds of paintings in this mm -hmm. hanging up everywhere on the ceiling and off the walls. If they sold one of your paintings, you, they got 10%. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm a numbers guy, so I told everybody, hey, if you sell one of mine, I'll give you 20%. Mm -hmm. And then my work was actually a lot tighter and a lot better than most of the other artists. Mm -hmm. 
And because of my work at Knott's Berry Farm, I could kind of hone in on what people enjoyed doing. Yeah, I was going to say that gave you a lot of chops. A lot it of did. Of it gave me a lot of chops. Yeah. And, and at the same time, I, and I would do everything from doing portraits to literally painting roosters, yeah. you know, icebergs. I had no, I had no identity as an artist, right. none whatsoever. Right. So, um, but I knew I could do whatever I did. I could do really well. But so then, next thing you know, um, they said, "Well, listen, we uh, we're going to um, uh, we're going to have this uh, this lady uh, wants to do an interview with us on on the on the radio, and uh, we're looking for an artist to, to to be our spokesperson. We'd like you to do it because now I, I'm so used to talking to tens of thousands of people at Knott's Berry sure. Farm. Yeah. I became very comfortable. You're, you're gregarious now. I'm gregarious <laughs> now, absolutely. So then uh, that's when I got my first shot and got into a couple galleries. And Sorry. the first one was right there inside, uh, was right there at this, uh, at uh, uh, the Orange County, um, uh, at this Orange County uh, mall area. And, uh, and then I started to, uh, then I started to paint. I just couldn't find where I belonged. Yeah. That was the that was the tough part. I, so this is where the the Lyonnais Lyonnais yes, period. Yes, yes, yes. You gotta I'm, tell that yes. story because I've heard you tell it before. But yeah. it's so cute. <laughs> it's just an awesome story. So I uh, so you're like the flower guy, right? I'm First, the flower guy yeah. at this point, and I was I was the cigar guy at one point too. And I, I would go to these cigar aficionados. Uh, cigar aficionado with cigars are very big at this particular time. I want to say this is. Oh, I, I, I don't remember what year it was, but cigars are very, very big. And so um, they had this annual smokers. They go the, 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 uh, in, into Monterey and you know, they'd stay at the Ritz-Carlton and, and they'd have all these, it had all my cigar paintings around. I had a, uh, one gallery that's sort of a sponsor that was in charge of selling these paintings for me. And were they like photorealist? Completely yeah. photorealistic. I, it used to be a challenge for me to see how much detail mm -hmm. I could get into a painting house mm -hmm. to where you could literally reach out and touch it. And um, the way that I'd gotten my teaching job earlier, earlier on was that I had, um, uh, is that I had used photorealism to, to the ultimate maximum. I did not want someone to be able to tell if it was a photograph or not. Yeah. I just, that was, to me, that, that said that you were really somebody. So I'm sitting across from this guy who's uh, he's very, uh, he's very, uh, very loud. And he, and I said, man, I said, Who's this guy sitting across from us with his mom? I said, that guy is just really loud and obnoxious. He's never going to amount to anything. And uh, the, the guy that I was with that brought me there, he goes, oh, that's some radio disc jockey named Ryan Seacrest. <laughs> I said, oh, my gosh. Now I look back and go, <laughs> I should have just hung on to his coattails for a minute. But um, no, so then I was the flower guy. And I'd come up to Vegas and uh, paint, and I'd paint live. I'd paint wet on wet, and I'd drive up working my tail off and uh, again at, at the same time uh, something absolutely horrific happened. My daughter who eventually uh, passed away from cancer got encephalitis. She went into a coma and was in a coma for three months and left where she couldn't walk, speak, anything and that was three years of coming back so I'm running back and forth schlepping my art, doing whatever I can, painting anything I can, living wherever I could and I ended up moving up to the mountains at that time uh, because my rent was only like $600 a month and I had a nice big space. But there were times when my car broke down and there were many nights when I was on my way to Cafe Tutu Tango where I literally would walk in and, and say to myself, Goddard, if you don't sell something tonight, like your kids are going to eat, but you're not. Mm -hmm. And there were many times I did not. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but anyway, so I went up and I, 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 told, uh, I told this lady, Leslie, and this was in the Aladdin, then it was the Aladdin before it was Planet Hollywood. And I said, Leslie, I said, um, you know, how can I make more money? I know we're doing really good with my flowers. I said, what's hot right now? And she said, well, what's hot right now is these, uh, these landscapes. 
and they're landscapes of destinations such as Santorini and Venice and those are the types of places that these guys are painting and she goes if you could paint like these guys um, because their paintings sell for you know somewhere between sixteen and thirty thousand dollars a piece if I could if you could paint like this I could get in there for less than ten thousand sell sell your art and I said well I can do anything she, she said well show me so I said okay I can do that so I came back with this landscape and she goes, wow, that's incredible. She goes, but we have a problem. The problem is, I can't have you painting flowers. I can't have you painting flowers and then painting, you know, landscapes. It doesn't make sense. You have no identity as an artist. So there's no way to separate that. And I said, actually, there is. <laughs> I said, what about if I painted under a pen name? She goes, a pen name? And I go, yeah. I said, what about if I came in, we could create an artist. He could be from anywhere in the world. And I'll write a biography for him. And we'll sell them that way. So she goes, okay, but you know we'd have to meet at the gallery really early and this and that, whatever, in the morning or something. And, 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 and any, I, any gallery people who are listening, don't ever do this. Don't ever do this. <laughs> and so uh, I said, listen, I said, where would you like this artist to be from? She goes, well, how about from France? I go, great. I go, I will come up with uh, this, this Frenchman's biography by the weekend, and next time I bring up paintings, well, you'll have signed paintings by this new artist. So the name I chose was, was Lene. And Lene painted just like all the other artists did, very thick. It was done with a palette knife. Um, it was done, some of them were done a little bit flat, but they were all very beautiful. It was the best of everything I saw on everyone. I would take a little bit of Howard Barron's, a little bit of Sam Parks, a little bit of Victor Shavaiko. I would take all these artists and take the best qualities that I saw in their paint. There was a guy, I don't know if you remember him more, named Chow Young. He was hot. He was really hot for a while as an uh, Asian Asian man, but his palette was so unique because he included a lot of really strange like turquoise colors and pinks together. But he made it work, and so I took all the best of these ingredients, threw my own version of it out together, and uh, and started ending up to the gallery in Vegas. I make my drive up, drop them off early. No one got to see me. I was in. I was out. And uh, by the third week, the paintings were selling pretty well. And we had a little uh, we had a little meeting. And uh, Leslie says, listen, today I'm going to get some feedback from everybody so you can actually hear how you're doing. Of course, nobody knew that I was Lene. I was just Goddard, the, the flower guy. And um, so she starts talking about Lene. She goes, you know, we handled him exclusively from Paris, him and his family. And one of the new guys, <laughs> his name was Luis, and he wants to impress the, he wants to impress the boss. He says, I don't. Leslie, I don't mean to, to you know, um, say anything disparaging against, against you or, or anything, you know, that would be demeaning in any way to anyone else, but actually, I, I know Lene, and I'm, I'm friends with his whole family. <laughs> and he goes, I represented them in Beverly Hills for a short time. <laughs> and I was like, oh my gosh, Luis, you are digging a hole that's so deep right now. But, um, but uh, then um, I'm, I'm at home kicking out my Linnae paintings and I'm doing really well with that and um, and so that I didn't have to pay for framing. I mean, I wish I'd hung on to a few of them. <laughs> so, so people are actually but, looking for Linnae paintings. Yes, yeah. so then, then what happened was um, I'm, you know, uh, painting away in my studio in uh, San Clemente and uh, I get a call from Leslie from uh, Vegas and she says to me, she says, um, Goddard, we, ha we have a we have a problem. And I go, what's that? She goes, well, your Linnae paintings. And I go, yes. She goes, well, you keep spelling the last name different. <laughs> and I go, what? She goes, sometimes you have two S's, sometimes you have one, sometimes you add an E at the end, and sometimes you hyphenate. 
And I'm like going, oh my gosh, I've never actually taken the time to figure out the spelling. She goes, where in the world did you get this name, Lene? Anyway, she said, I like it. I like it. It sounds very French. I go, Leslie, I don't want to tell you. She goes, no, please do. I go, well, actually, as I'm talking to you right now, I'm making sandwiches for my girls, just like I was the day I came up with Lene. And so their, their favorite thing was bologna sandwiches and with, with mayonnaise. So I thought, man, mayonnaise sounds like a French word, mayonnaise, you know. And, uh, or Mayonnaise, you know, and uh, it sort of sounds like Monet, I don't know. So it worked for me. So I said, that's where I got the A's part. And I said, the first, uh, the other part was that normally when I'm at home, I don't like to wear a t-shirt. So I'm bare chested. So I look down at my belly button and I pull out a huge piece of lint because apparently I did not clean my belly button out that night. <laughs> so anyway, so I said, I took the word lint and A's, and I put together, and I got Linnae's. So, oh my gosh, so um, I must have done maybe uh, a dozen paintings, not that many, maybe, maybe just a dozen. They were, they were time consuming. And, um, and then I retired the, uh, I retired Linnae. Well, we, and, uh, but we actually, I actually came across one. I know, I saw it. Yeah, yeah. I came yeah. across one at a- And you bought it. At a, at yeah. a, at a, at a like art a, gallery. A store or something, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember now. The the guy from the art gallery said he bought it at a like at, at a yard sale or something, and he just loved the painting. He says the technique was incredible, and you it was know a whatever. Painting, yeah, yeah, it was, it was like a castle. It was, yeah, it was a uh, yeah, it was an, yeah, it was an abbey in the yeah. middle of uh, Ireland, yeah. and, um, and so seat in the back, yeah. And we and, brought it. We brought it to auction. Yeah. And then you came up with this idea of telling my making story. it a, a contemporary painting. Yeah. Right. And yeah, I'm, I'm not only going to make it a contemporary painting. It's going to be an autobiography. And uh, so what happened was I went into the store or went into the gallery, and I told the the owner. I said, "Who is this artist?" He goes, "I really don't know much about him. I haven't been able to find any information on him, but he's an incredible artist." <laughs> and I said, "How much do you want for it?" And um, and so you know he, he you know he gave me a price. I said, "Oh my gosh, this is ridiculous." Okay, I'll take it. <laughs> you know, he just wanted to get rid of it. So he'd had it for a long time, and did you, did actually, you? I had I worked him on the price a little bit. I ended up getting it for uh, very very cheap, and um, and then I couldn't believe that I'd actually found one of my old Linnae paintings. Yeah. I mean, the chances yeah. were yeah. Just the stars were aligned that yeah. day. Yeah. Stars were aligned. Yeah. So uh, I have that painting in my collection. We brought it to auction, and I thought, what a great way to tell the story of Michael Goddard and have my autobiography. And, and what I'm going to do in the painting, it's an incredible... I've actually... You know, one of the things that I love about doing commissions is that the person that I'm working with uh, normally gives me lots and lots of freedom, but at the same time, it has... A certain connection to them. There's something about it that means something to them. And uh, and uh, again, I thought, what a great way to tell my story. So in this painting now, I'm going to take the Lene painting, and I'm going to I'm going to go all the way back through the butterfly paintings, the scar paintings, the the olives, and all that, and take people through the transition in the painting, um, which I'm, I'm going to really enjoy doing, and take them through the whole painting to tell my story, and um, which which. It, it, to me, it's like almost like the tattoos that I have on my arm. When I got when I finally did get tattooed, I wanted it not just to be something, uh, you know, that I thought might look, you know, aesthetically Decor pleasing. You yeah. know, I mean, yeah. I really wanted something that had some meaning to me. So my, you know, my tattoos on my arm have, you know, 
everything on there is symbolic for something that's very important in my life as far as you know my kids and my my marriage and the ghosts of my childhood are in here uh, you know right here it says welcome back to fabulous las vegas because we're so poor on food stamps i i finally decided when i do come back i'm coming back as a pimp <laughs> so so i have this olive here but it says welcome back so all these things mean so much uh mean so much to me the same way that that painting does it was just uh, really unique aligning of the stars. It's a really cool idea, and what a, yeah. what a great opportunity to find a piece like that and then build on that. You know your whole your whole story. Yeah. It's so let, let's talk about your technique. I think that um, you know we've talked about this before. Your technique is is astonishing. You're a really 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 good painter. You can paint anything, and because of the um, the narrative in your paintings, the story in your paintings, the the humor in your paintings, the whimsy. Uh, a lot of people overlook the fact that they're so rigorous, that they're really, really good, good paintings. Oh, thank uh, you. You're welcome. And um, talk about the process of how you paint and you know what you go through in, in terms of your technique in creating these astonishing paintings. At the very first thing that comes to mind when I think about this, Maury, is something huge. And that is that during my short time at uh, Art Center in Pasadena, and I already explained that we came from, you know, no money at all. Paper was a huge commodity in our family. And I grew up drawing on paper sacks, on the corners of newspapers. We didn't have the money to draw or for me to just waste paper. Paper was a, was a big commodity. And I had to buy my supplies. And the only reason I even got to go to Art Center was on was because of a scholarship. It wasn't because my family could not afford to send me there, and that's the reason I didn't graduate from there as well. But um, so I was sent on a scholarship there. Uh, actually, I got the scholarship while I was in high school, uh, before I had uh, graduated high school in uh, Covina at a place called Western Christian. And um, so the thing that the teacher did, which absolutely horrified me, was at the beginning of the class, the first day of school, he asked us to take our black chalk that we had and, and scribble all over this giant piece of, you know, 18 by 24, two foot long piece of pure, pristine, perfect drawing paper and asked us to scribble on it. I was mortified. And I, he, he, we did this four or five times, went through five sheets of paper. And I'm like thinking, oh my gosh, like I've got to buy more paper. This is terrible this whatever what, what, was, what was his intention his so, like, intention was to, his intention was to not be afraid of a blank canvas right. okay. and every day that I went to school we would start out by completely destroying yeah. our canvas yeah. and saying that no matter what you do yeah. you can recover from this right. don't be afraid yeah. of the yeah. paper yeah. It's, and it's, it's a good lesson it was a great lesson yeah. and today when people ask me they go do you ever get artist block I go no I'm not afraid to just start and scribble yeah. and completely destroy something that's yeah. a perfect white canvas, pristine, uh -huh. the teeth, everything is perfect, and completely destroy it. Run a knife through it, whatever. And that helped me to overcome my fear. It was a, it was the very first step in, in learning to, you know, trust trust my innate uh, talent and 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 to to realize that you know that whatever I did, you know that you know you could always start over. So when I come to a, a canvas, I'm absolutely fearless, absolutely fearless. I'm not saying that to brag, I'm saying this was something I was taught. It wasn't, it wasn't a natural thing, it was, it was a learned thing. And um, the second thing 
uh, was I took this I took this drawing class, and you know it's it's just basic it's just basic uh, drawing lessons. You know, you, you do something called blind contour, and I remember. You know, and I'm thinking, I'm, you know, you always think you're a really good artist when, you know, you're raised by, you know, your, your elementary teacher and your high school teacher who also teaches PE and history. Yeah. And what does he know about art? Maybe not a whole lot. But when you change the, the venue to college and everyone there draws, good. And they're all good. now you yeah. realize, oh, yeah. okay, who's got, got some, the chops in here and who doesn't? Do. Yeah. I got some work to yeah, do. So right. for me, being that competitive person, I want to be the best. <laughs> so, and I, I felt, I felt so, I felt so naive. I felt so ignorant in art class because everything that I had done up to that point came so naturally for me. But I didn't know, I didn't understand what was behind that. I didn't understand the techniques and the things that were making that art. Um, you know, and and I was also thinking to you know that I can't get any better than I am because I don't know anything else. And all of a sudden, this whole new world opens up. So. For example, we did this thing called blind contour, where and and some of the people listening may have heard of this before. And it's just where you take a pencil and you put it on the paper, and you don't look at the paper. And you don't lift the pencil. Either, right. Right. Yeah. And I remember yeah. my 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 art look, teacher saying, looking at something though you're drawing yes, something out there. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And he said it's 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 teaching your hand to do what you what your, your eyes, mind sees. Yeah, uh-huh. He goes, the problem with, with artists is they look at their paper 90% of the time and their subject 10% of the time. Right, right. That should be the reverse. Right. Your hand should do whatever's, whatever you tell it to automatically and know where you're at. So as I did this more and more, I got better and better at, better at it. And then to kind of make this even make more sense, the reason that you do that is, I remember one day we walked in and he said, how many of you done portraits before? Of course, everyone you know in the class. How many of you have drawn eyes before? Everyone in the class raised their hand. He goes, when you draw an eye, when you draw the eyelashes, where do they start? Do they start just underneath the lid of the eye, or do they, or do they grow right from the edge of the eye? No one could answer. answer. Yeah. The reason nobody could answer is that they never they're paid lost. attention. Yeah. The information was always there, but they never paid attention. And I thought, ah, oh, I get it. When I go to do a piece of, when I go to do a drawing, I need to be looking at my subject all the information I have, I can make something so, I can make something so real. If I'm not a lazy butt, <laughs> I can look at it and I get it so accurate that it would be a duplicate copy. I am like a human Xerox machine, and I thought if I can do that, if I could just get my hand to do, which practice my my you know blind contour, and if I look at something, I can make it as photorealistic so where I can trick everybody. Now, the the next thing sort of comes to mind that you know, again, you know, you're you're trying to Take you know take all this uh, take all this information in and and assimilate it to where it's something you can do something you can do something with it and um, there was there was a, an artist that I absolutely adored and because I love photorealism and I never seen someone who could paint such photorealism as he did it reminded me of some of the some of the Raphaels and some of the uh, the Rembrandts I mean the way they could make something look like metal. By by use of just color and by it didn't even it didn't even have to look like uh, it didn't have to look photographic it did from a distance because all these ingredients work together at the same time to me it was all it, it all came together with it, it's a math thing as well but who's the artist you're referring to so this artist I'm talking about is a guy named Donald Roller Wilson now I, I never s- heard of him yeah he paints Donald Donald Ro- Roller, Roller Wilson, Wilson. yeah Wilson. Roller, Donald Roller Wilson. Roller Wilson. Uh-huh. 
In fact, I love his art so much that I actually have him tattooed right oh, here. Wow. Yeah. This is a picture of a of a cat a smoking cat. a cigarette, uh -huh. and she's cross dressing, and it says <laughs> Naughty Judy. And I went to a I went to uh, an art gallery down in Pasadena, and at that time I'd had many 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 years of airbrushing under my belt and very uh, and a lot of years as illustrating. You know, very. Um, uh, very photorealistic things, and I was hired by Saks Fifth Avenue and Coca-Cola as a, as a photo illustrator, um, kind of like Andy Warhol was for a short time, but he's very good at it. And this is without the use of computers and everything. I just had a very good eye, and I was all, all about the detail. And I walked in this gallery, and I said, listen, I said, I'm, I, I'm a very good uh, airbrush artist. In fact, I can do anything. And he said to me, he says, well, and so I, actually, let me back up a little bit. The, the name of the gallery is called Mendenhall Gallery. It's still there. It's in Pasadena. And they carried my favorite artist's work. The reason I fell in love with him is he painted the old master's way. He did it with underpaintings. He understood uh, tones and values and, you know, uh, the, the, the chromatic scale, which to me is huge. Even today, everything I do, um, I, if I have the chance, I will do it in black and white first. Because if, if you get the grayscale correct, if it looks great in black and white, it'll look amazing in color. But I see so many artists that make a common mistake of not understanding that chromatic, uh, that the chromatic values, and you look at it, and they their 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 blue washes out their red because of the same they're on the same uh, frequency of, of uh, on the on the light spectrum. So I I thought to myself I thought well you know. Here's this guy who paints better than anybody else in the world, and he paints cross-dressing cats. <laughs> now, simultaneously, <laughs> I'm, 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 I've, I've been, I started playing drums when I was uh, 12 years old. Yeah, my, my second year in junior high, I started playing the drums. And um, so I played in bands all the way up into my 30s, and that I always thought I was going to be a rock star. That was what I was going to do. It was going to be art. It was going to be a mathematician. I always kept the band thing going forever and ever and ever. And along the way, some of the people that I met, like Vince Neil from Motley Crue, I met him when I was only 12 years old. They went on to become these huge rock stars. And they, they I, I remember more than once them, them telling me, listen, Goddard, like if ever you make it in music, don't sell out. Don't just hand your life over to the record company because you'll sign a contract. And by the time they're done with your art, it's no longer yours anymore. They have chopped it up, made it commercialized, and all this other stuff. Well, I took those words like I do everything, and I applied it to the rest of my life, and I applied it to my art. And I said, listen, I said, I'd, I'm not going to sell out. I'm not going to paint for somebody else to paint just something that I think will sell. I'm past that point where I really don't care. Don't need the money. Just need enough money to get by. And at that time, my dream was just to exactly that, make, make a living in art instead of pushing a pencil around. So... Um, I see this artist named Donald Roller Wilson, and I'm looking through this book, which is called, uh, um, uh, let's see, uh, A Wind in the Night, uh, something like that, A Wind in the Night, uh, it escapes me at the moment, but it's, it's, a, it's a metaphor for farting. <laughs> it's like a breeze in the night. <laughs> but here's what Donald Roller Wilson did. He painted so realistically, and I watched his his evolution as an artist so you see the things that he did in his younger years and I've never seen it was just it was it was amazing it was like an old master's paint where it was just so realistic and the subjects were just all um, uh, you know still lifes but it was amazing how how 
how accurate his, his paintbrush was and how he understood color and how he understood lighting and what could really make something look real. And then, as I continue on the book, all of a sudden I see monkeys. And I see, you know, floating cigarettes and floating olives and, you know, people, uh, 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 you know, monkeys and cats with like these huge, you know, uh, head headdresses that are made of fruit. And, and then around it, he had uh, these gilded frames that he made himself that were made of gold. And he would write the story and tell the story. Well, this is Naughty Judy. She, you know, she always pondered about the universe. And one day a shooting star went by and such and such happened. I thought, oh my gosh, he's creating his own world. I would love to do that. And it made such an impression on me that I thought, you know, when I, when I finally did discover what I wanted to paint, which was, you know, my silly olives and all that, that I had a chance to do whatever I wanted to do without the restrictions of falling under a certain label or whether it was humorous or not, I didn't care. I didn't care about the money. I didn't care about what people thought. And most people dismissed me as this guy's, this guy's never going to make it. And uh, at first people hated it and then they fell in love with it. So, you know, um, I feel really blessed that I had, that I came across this work. So I go to, going backwards, so I go to Mendenhall Gallery and this, this is what kind of got me through. Now I knew how to airbrush. I could, I could recreate anything with my airbrush. But I went into Benton Hall because this is where Donald Roller Wilson, I was going to look at his, his first painting that, uh, that I've ever seen outside of a book. Like I was going to see one up close and personal in Pasadena. I go in and I'm like, oh my gosh, I want to have my artwork alongside Donald Roller Wilson's. But I, I, had no, I had no theme to my paintings or anything. I had done a couple portraits of my daughters that were extremely photorealistic. And, um, and this, I, this is pre-Linné or post-Linné? Pre, Pre-Linné. Pre-Linné. And so I you went hadn't in there. Really started selling your art yet? Yes, I hadn't really hadn't really started, and it was just I just had this strong interest in it. And uh, well, this is probably maybe sort of at the same time, mm-hmm. actually. And so I went in there, and they go, "Well, this is this is airbrush." And I go, "Yeah." And they go, "Well, that's carny art." And I go, "Well, what do you mean?" And they go, "Well, every swap meet you go to, and every you know every fair, and you know every uh, car." Um, you know, the car thing that they hold, the, the little events they have with old time cars. You always see an airbrusher there, yeah. and uh, inside circus, circus or whatever. And they go, Wait, it's just, it's just carny art. Like you need to paint with a brush, and uh, if you can't paint with a brush, then we, we didn't want to look at it. I go, I, but you don't understand, I'm the best. <laughs> and they're like, no, you're completely dismissed. Wow. So I thought, wow, I've got to learn how to paint with a brush. And just like, I, I don't know, I, I, I want to kind of say it's kind of a fallacy, but um, you could take. Watercolor, well, you can take a pencil drawing and put it next to watercolor, and the watercolor, the exact same image, exact same size, will sell for more. It's a little bit more difficult, we'll say. And then you can take a watercolor, put it next to an acrylic, and acrylic will sell for more than the watercolor did. And if you take an acrylic and you put it next to an oil painting, the oil painting will sell more. That's mainly, I think, because of histories and had to do with uh, archival, uh, mm-hmm. its, its ability to, to, to withstand time, um, physically withstand time, because a pencil drawing, it's okay, but you just you just look at a painting as being much more valuable. It's sort of a, it, it doesn't mean that it was any easier. It's a perceptual. It's perception. a perceptual yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah, sure it is. Yeah. And just like you could take a comic book artist and relate them to you know a fine artist, and the comic book artist will be dismissed, even though mm-hmm. some of the techniques and the anatomy he has to understand mm-hmm. in order yeah. to do what he does, right. and the understanding the the the, uh, the the laws of like doing foreshortening, I mean, they're incredibly difficult, yeah. and, uh, but he gets dismissed because it's still just a comic. Right. 
And so that's what I thought about my, uh, that, that's what I wanted to get past with my art. But I thought, you know what, I'm gonna stay true to myself and I'm going to, I'm going to paint humor if I want to. And these were the paintings that I did not to put bell, uh, food in my belly because I needed to, at this point still to do those paintings. And I would paint portraits because I knew I was, I was very good at, at portraits. And I thought if I can paint a portrait, I can always make money. Warhol, when he slowed down, and you know every artist has his highs and lows. When Warhol's work wasn't the end thing, um, he painted portraits, and not just portraits for you know the famous ones that we know about Marilyn Monroe, but he painted portraits just about for anybody who wanted to get a portrait. But he could charge twenty five thousand dollars a piece, and yeah. he made his money. So you which know, which was a lot back in that day. Which was, it was yeah. a lot, yeah. yeah. But he could he could command those yeah. kind of prices, and you know so now. Like him, I at least in my mind, I say, well, now you know, I've got Michael Jordan and Chris Angel and you know the late Carol Shelby and Hugh Hefner and all these people want me to paint them as olives. I feel kind of like Andy Warhol. <laughs> you know? I'm going to slip my stuff around except I'm painting them as olives and he silk screen their faces and added paint. There's but. still that same pejorative attitude about airbrush too. I think still. Oh yeah, no, yeah. I think that stigma yeah. is going to be there yeah. for uh, a while. Yeah, but you use a little bit of airbrush. I do. I, yeah. I I love it. And yeah. um, some of your smoke and mist. Smoke and mist. Yeah. yeah. And you know, there's a way to do it. Um, I was just talking to another uh, client of ours this weekend that was here. That's an artist. And she goes, do you use airbrush? And I go, yeah. I go, but you don't have to use an airbrush. She goes, well, how so? I said, well, you could take acrylic and break it down with water and treat it like a watercolor. Um, if you were to paint a painting purely and you were, let's say, for just as an example, you were to paint wine in a glass. First, I would paint the wine. The problem is when you go afterwards and you have to go over the, the glass part of it, and once you hit the red part of the wine, it's not red anymore, and it's not white either, and it's not gray. It's a mixture of the two. These are colors that are um, natural. That that if you if you if you did it the easy way, which is the way I'm doing, which is after the fact and not before the fact, because before the fact you'd have to actually mix the color and get this sort of a pink color uh, that would be in there for the highlight. You had to mix it all at once. But if you're going to do it afterwards, you could do it very easily with an airbrush, simply by masking it over and going over with the light mist. You could do the same thing with acrylic. You just had to break it down with a lot of water and and get that same you know to get that same uh, get that same sort of effect. Well, what you do with your paintings is even more difficult because you you use black backgrounds, right? Yeah, and most of your paintings. <laughs> and so you gotta you gotta paint that three or four times just to get the canvas tooth out, right? Yeah. And then you gotta paint white everywhere where you wanna put any subject. Yes. And they, you gotta lay it and down they look on top so of the black. Yeah, they look so strange. I like to you see, see all these white yeah. shapes and yeah. oh my gosh, no, it's it's uh, they look very bizarre. But it's so like doing the underpainting. It's like three times more work, you right? Know, so it's taking a canvas and, and you know, and uh, or getting a black canvas, I guess. Yeah. If you, if you got a black canvas, would you still have to put the white down? Yes. Yeah. I would, I would yeah. think that you would, yeah. just simply because uh, the titanium white that I use isn't strong enough or isn't opaque enough to, to get rid of it. Um, the problem is that every time you lay down, say, a very very sharp, sharp thin line, and you have to paint that same line nine times, that means that you have to be accurate nine times. Right. And there are days when I wake up where you know uh, my hands might be a tiny bit shaky, maybe I've had too much coffee, mm -hmm. and then there are days when I wake up and the universe is completely aligned and everything I do is effortlessly and just whoosh, 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 whoosh. Mm -hmm. But most of what I do, going back to the uh, what I was saying earlier about the, the blank canvases, Mainly what I do, most of my work is done by planning the painting out. And I mean planning it from every aspect because 
after, you know, now what I'm doing is I'm taking and um, I'm trying to guide the eye across the paint to where I want, I, where I want the uh, client or the viewer to uh, f follow the flow of the painting so that their eyes do a certain thing and they, they rotate around the painting and around the painting. And the way to do that is you have to create interest to the eye. And there's three or four ways that I know that, that I use, three or four techniques that I use to, to do that. One is the most obvious by creating contrast. You put something white, a little white dot against something that's very, very black, and immediately your eye goes right to that white dot. The second way is by using opposite colors, which people have known for years, like, you know, the, the old uh, 76 sign is made of orange and blue, which are completely opposite on the, the color spectrum. Mm -hmm. So you can create it by doing opposite colors. So uh, an olive that has green in it, uh, I'll use a red pimento. And um, so that's one way of creating. Another way of creating interest is by knowing the colors and how they relate to each other and how to create, um, you know, uh, different things. And and uh, and the third the third way is by putting something very very uh, soft against something that's very sharp or something very very misty against something very very detailed. So I'll do that in my painting too, where there might be like clouds or certain parts of the paintings that hardly have any detail at all, and right next to it have teeny teeny tiny details. Your eye will just zoom right in at it. Mm -hmm. And it, you know one of the things that I learned as, as far as color goes very early is that. People have a tendency, or at least you know, young artists, they'll look at, uh, say they want to shade uh, an ocean, and it's blue. And uh, they have this blue ocean, and uh, it's very, very rich, and they're using, you know, thalocyanine blue or whatever. When they add, their natural tendency is to add black. When you add black, it destroys the color. It takes all the, all the vibrancy out of it. It doesn't matter what color it is. You don't add black, because in real life, you know, if you have a shadow underneath your green shirt because of a fold, it is, it's not black underneath, it's actually a darker shade of green. green. Yeah. You have to learn how to understand color, and, do, and, and that's where education really helps, because you can, you can learn by putting certain browns in, or maybe just taking the opposite color. Mm -hmm. like, like, for example, if you want to make black even darker black, you can add blue to it, and it'll get even darker of a black. So if you have those, if you have those tools, then, then, you can, then you can really be in control of what's happening. But you have to get all those you have to learn everything that you know that that art uh, that the art scholars have taught you. Then you have to forget everything and go your own way. Mm -hmm. But you have to take all that 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 information is really important and it really does work. Just like they have the rule of thirds, you know, with things, and they have um, in beauty they talk about the golden proportions, which is one point one six one eight, and that that is when you take a face and you look at the ratio between the eyes and the nostrils. And those those points, there's 33 markers on the face that show you uh, the, the the perfect the perfect face. And you take all those markers, and the more they line up, and the more they add up, and, and the closer they come to that particular ratio, and different you know whether it's comparing the nose to the chin or the eyes to the nose, the the more of those markers you get correctly, the more um, the more. Uh, beautiful the person is. This is why Angelina Jolie or Brad Pitt, if you were to take him, uh, take their face, put it and, and put it with those 33 markers, like these guys are like hitting 30 out of 33 or 34, yeah. Yeah. they're going to be beautiful to everyone, you know? I mean, my fiance is that way. You look at her, she's like drop dead gorgeous. And I'm sure that has a lot to do with her symmetry. And bodybuilding is the same way. They're, bodybuilders can only go so far, but it's that symmetry that gives them the natural, natural edge. Yeah. So if you can understand that, and if you can take those rules, then take everything you know about color, and then everything you know about light, and know that you know 
um, one of the masters of, of color and the master of, uh, uh, of shapes and things is Agam. Agam, absolutely brilliant. And if you look at his pieces, he, I don't think he chooses any color randomly. He understands beyond what the eye sees. He understands the, the science of what's going on behind it, the nature of those colors, and not just that, but how they work together. And the juxtaposition. The juxtaposition yeah. of those. Yeah. And, and if you understand that, I believe yeah. you can do anything. He comes out of the Joseph Albers school. You know Joseph Albers? Yeah. The, oh. the theoretician? Yeah. The, the incredible. The color. Yeah. yeah. Incredible. That book is uh, it's, it's its 50th year anniversary right now. They just reissued it. I'm reading it again. It's really oh, cool. yeah. It's, it's Interaction of Color by Joseph yeah. Albers. Yeah. So your compositions are amazing, too. You talk about how you want to direct people's eye through the work, you know, not just catching their eye, but also moving it through the eye, uh, moving it through the painting. I know the Renaissance artists used to talk about, uh, they'd refer to their, painting, their paintings as machines. Yeah. They're all bolted together, <laughs> yeah. and if they're running smoothly, the eye would you be know, running more, through they, the composition. They really do you know? feel that way sometimes. Yeah. Like, like for me, the most exciting part for me is, is finishing the painting, because until then, I'm back in I'm back in college doing blind contour and I'm in autopilot <laughs> and I know all the things that I have to do but when I get to the end that's where I get to uh, have a little bit of fun and maybe right. go in a little bit different direction right. but you know you, you you create it's like a, it's like it's like building a house it's like you know the last putting on the last finishing touches it's not you know when there's a, a when there's a concrete slab and all that you know but again you know having the uh, uh, having the knowledge about the tools, like if I was to build a house uh, alongside a, a construction worker who's trying to draw, I mean, he could show me so many shortcuts and say, "Don't use a hammer for that. We have a staple gun that will go <laughs> ten times as fast, and you don't end up with you know bleeding hands." And and, and if I was going to teach him art, I'd say, "Listen, you know, you can use a straight edge. You just have to f practice and and hold your finger a certain way and learn how to use your arm instead of your fingers to do it." Um, one of the most common mistakes that I see in, uh, in artists that paint oceans is that their horizon line droops slightly. Uh -huh. And it's not actually in the framing, it's because your hand has a natural curve to it. Right. And if you're not aware of your natural tendencies, then there's no way to overcome it. Because mm -hmm. so, you have to compensate for it. And um, you know you could you could draw a circle down at your waistline, and it'll be a perfect circle. But then when you lift it up and you hold it up to your eye, you realize that now it's an ellipse because down here it's actually distorted. Mm -hmm. If you know all those things, it's like when Michelangelo did, you know, David and everything else. Trying to understand things might be a little bit out of proportion, but they were necessary because you you're trying to look at it the same way that the viewer does, and you have to go you have to go that deep in the painting to really do it right. Yeah. I mean, I could do paintings where I don't put. 100% into it, um, not often anymore because I'm the new kid on the block at Park West. I think I've been doing the best paintings of my life because I'm hungry again. <laughs> I'm hungry again. And, and, you're, uh, and you're competing. With I'm competing. I'm competing. Really oh, I, love, yeah. I love the competition. Yeah. So, you know, I'm competing with, uh, with, with uh, you know, with, 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 yeah, Picasso, <laughs> a gong. I'm not even the same, I'm not even on the same planet as them, but I'm trying to think that maybe I can, you know, elevate myself to that level, which would be incredible. But uh, again, what, what's, what's great about knowing the rules is that, let's say I'm drawing a martini glass. And, and guiding that eye like you talked about. So let's just say that my light source is coming in from the right-hand side, uh, you know, a, a, across to the left. And so everything on, on you know, the, the right-hand side of the painting, every element that's within the painting should be lit up on the right-hand side. Well, knowing that I could kind of bend the rules and use that artistic license, I will take that 
you know, that, that, that light that's on the right-hand side. And when it comes to the, the element that's on the right-hand side, it should be lit up on the right. I'll light it up on the left to get you to look back at the, at the other side of the painting again. For, for example, the, the easiest uh, uh, example of that that I can think of is just, you know, if you're standing outside and you look into the air, I guarantee you if someone comes up and sees you, they're probably going to look up to see what you're looking at. Mm -hmm. And if you have a character, say, say an olive, and it doesn't have to be an olive, I'm just using that as an example, but if you, if you have a person in your painting who's looking a certain direction, your eye will naturally want to look at what they're looking at. Mm -hmm. So there's things about the brain and the way that we see things that we're not really aware of, they're unconscious. That's, that's what I love about uh, Agam, is that you can, there's so many things that can play tricks on the eye. You know, you've seen um, uh, those, uh, like Escher's paintings, where, you know, they look like they're going up an endless staircase, right. or you take some of the paintings that have uh, uh, certain squares and colors next to each other, little dots, and all of a sudden you're seeing gray dots in between. If you understand those principles and you can apply them to the painting, you can literally, like the whole universe is open to you. So for me, it's a matter of math, taking those proportions, and then controlling what happens within the painting to bring you back. And it doesn't really matter what the subject is, because you can look at any painting and see, you know, and break it down and say, oh, this is what's happening here, this is what's happening here. But if you look at a painting, you go, my, my first thing when I come up to paintings is, why does this work for me? Or why doesn't it work? Why don't I like this painting? And why do I really like this painting? Some people, you know, uh, uh, you know, can paint something very, very simple, and it can be done so well that you're just, you're just blown away. I mean, you know, and and uh, other ones they have so much stuff in it. You know, the, the second the second lesson that I think is the most important thing that I learned in college was never add something to a painting just to fill up space. Right. It has to have a reason for being there. Right. Right. So, you know, for me, I apply all all that math that I learned and those triangles and those shapes and all those things are important to me. And if, no matter where you are as an artist, if you want to become a better artist, you have to be able to see with your naked eye, you have to understand and be able to take proportions and measurements. If you were to do a portrait of someone and just get them off, they just have their eye off by a sixteenth of an inch, suddenly it doesn't look like him anymore. Because mm -hmm. we are so acute at disseminating the information of the human face that you can't um, you can't really escape it. And you can see a drawing and go, oh yeah, that looks a lot like you. But you know, if you can pull out its essence, then you can make a cartoon that you would see in like the New Yorker or like you know Norma Rockwell did or some of the satirists where if I was gonna draw a picture of Donald Trump, I would probably pick out those little small lips and those you know those skinny eyes and I would do the, the comb over and it would be enough just in that because you're, you're figuring out what the essence of it is. Mm -hmm. And then from there, you take the essence of it and then do whatever you wanna do. And then you tell the story which is what I loved about Donald Roller was. And then I go and I tell the story about what's happening. For me, the story is about the people that I live in and the world I live in right now. And right. I, from my perspective, which right. isn't right. everybody's. Right. So. Well, well, let's talk about that. That, that was uh, a, a good segue. Your characters and your ideas. Mm -hmm. the, you're so clever, you know, in the things that you, you come up with. It seems like you have kind of a limitless imagination in terms of stuff that, uh, you know, you, you come up with. Where do these ideas come from? Are you like are they rolling around in your head like constantly? You're like, are you experiencing things when you're? Are you thinking of a painting right now that we're sitting here in this? Yeah, room you talking? know, I, it's 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 funny. Um, I it, sometimes it comes from different things. Once in a while, I, I might just be having a conversation, and 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 someone will say, you know, um, you know, I, something about like a, a, a laundering money, you know, and 
and I will take it like literally, like literally, like yeah, laundry, like, like literally putting it in the yeah. wash. Yeah. So I love the double play on words. I've always really enjoyed that, and I make a lot of jokes during my presentations about you know about the, the the double play on words and talk about artists wanting to expose themselves or being well hung <laughs> you know <laughs> I, I love that you know but and and what I try and do at least as far as the humor goes is um, I still try and be respectful and I still try and be like well it's fruit so it's okay to be naked if you're fruit but it's not okay if you're a human being <laughs> you know you can't just run around naked and, and uh, do what you want to do but um, but, but the ideas come from a lot of different places. That's one of them. Um, sometimes you'll just get an idea and, 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 and it'll be you know something that I've dreamt about. Um, sometimes it's completely conscious where um, I uh, was talking to someone uh, yesterday and they're talking about um, uh, going through security and she, uh, she was telling me that she loves caviar so much and so she would literally like, because you're not allowed to actually transfer uh, certain foods, and she was talking about how she sneaks through security with caviar. Mm -hmm. I thought, oh my gosh, that's so funny. But so now I picture her with, you know, a bunch of caviar, like, you know, tape, duct tape to her, <laughs> her stomach, and it's, a, and it's a, you know, and it was like, like shoe heaven. That, uh -huh. that painting, shoe heaven, is really funny to me because, you know, it's all these women are like, oh gosh, a shoe, shoes are heaven. And you know, so all the famous brands and all that. So I love that sort of uh, um, playful side of the you know using the imagination. Um, but as far as ideas, I don't think I ever run out of them. I try to write them down when I'm really on a roll. I will write down tons and tons of ideas, um, and I, I probably have uh, I probably have a, a bunch on my phone right now. But I will go through and I'll try and jot it down before I forget it. And the other, the other times it'll just be like trying to find that, that connection between what, what it is that, that, that I, what, whatever it is that, that's inside of that object that makes it for, for me or that, 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 that pulls me. The connection, actually it's just the connection that I make with, with that uh, particular item, whatever, whatever it happens to be. I mean, you know, being in a, being in a car wreck recently, okay, it is what it is. And, um, you know, but going past that, I think about, okay, so lots of people have been in, in car accidents. So, you know, but so then I, I will think to myself next, I'll think, well, if I was to make a, a painting about a car accident, well, what, what do I want it to be about? And then I might say, well, you know, it might be, you know, um, uh, something that has to do with, um, you know, uh, an expensive car or doing something silly or texting while driving or, you know, getting a DUI. So I'll actually, uh, then, then from there it'll become a message. So, you know, the reason, the reason that I chose alcohol as a subject was because it's what we do to celebrate at weddings. It's what we do to um, uh, when we're playing poker with friends, uh, when we're celebrating a birthday, celebrating a graduation. But the message isn't like I want to encourage people to drink. That's that's not it at all. I'm just kind of making fun and trying to find a social, uh, you know, um, common denominator to, to kind of you know engage people to at least get them interested. So, um, but then beyond that, what I want to do is have them make some sort of uh, connection with it. And the most the the best way that I can think of to do it is to let it happen naturally. So there are times when I sit in bed trying to come up with ideas. Um, you know, and or I'll have an idea. I'll say, well, I want to do something that has to do with angels, but it's like driving home and having a destination. Your GPS will give you the fastest route, the shortest route, you know, the the route with the least amount of detours. Like, there's so many ways to get there, 
And to me, I'm a purist. I want to try the best way to get there. And that's what I hope happens to the painting so that people look at it and they go, wow, this is really cool. And then, you know, somehow they relate to it and then, you know, they end up uh, purchasing it so I can go on for another day. So, and, and yeah. Enjoying it forever, every day. Yeah. Um, your accident, you, uh, you had it. Um, September 27th, the day that Hugh Hefner died. 2017, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you Four broke, or five months ago. You broke your back. Yeah. 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 And your ankle, and you yeah. had some other severe injuries. Yeah. You're still limping around carrying a yeah. cane and stuff, and uh, yeah. you're still in a, a significant amount of pain. So yeah. I know you, you tried to kind of minimize it a moment ago, but uh, it was a heavy-duty accident. I mean, it was like a life-threatening type of thing. You could have easily been expired. Yeah, um, <laughs> actually. Do you, do you think that that's changed your your work at all and your life and the way you look at, at life? Because I think it, something like that has to be transformative. Sure it does. You know, you think, you think at my age that, um, I, I, I have this saying that I've held for since in my 20s that I, and uh, that was something I actually uh, stole from my uncle and he says Michael the older you get the more you become like yourself <laughs> and I didn't really understand it at first <laughs> but as I get older I do really do realize is the more I get set in my ways the more I want things a certain way and so when you get to that point where you're in your 50s like I am now I mean in, in March which is only a month away I'm, I'm turning 55 double nickels yeah and uh, I certainly don't feel 55, but um, but you know it's very few things that have been absolutely life changing that hit you at your core, and uh, yeah, this is definitely one of them. There's been three or four events in my life. Um, I have had other near death experiences, but um, but this was very recent, very much still in my head. I still am driving uh, everyone crazy because if I'm sitting next to them in the car, I'm going slow down, slow down, wait, 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 stop. You know, it's like driving them nuts but I think one of the things was is that it made me stop because I was down for about a month and a half where I couldn't even get out of bed and again I'm thinking to myself you know where am I at what, what is my status in my life and how present am I and if I had passed away which is ultimately what you think about what would have happened if I did not make it what would have happened what would have happened to the art? Would anybody remember what I've done? Where Where is my family at? What are my relationships like with everybody? You know, and you know, and most importantly, and and I hate I hate to sound selfish like this, but you know, my family and my friends have failed me many times. Art is my soulmate. My art is something that has been with me since as far back as I can remember that has never failed me, that has, that has always been there when I needed to call on her. She has been the one who's got me through the toughest times, whether it's drawing to simply, you know, uh, you know, for therapeutic reasons, just, you know, be, be, just, you know, to, to, to get through something tough or, and it's, and it's been there for me to express myself when I, you know, was, was sad or lonely, but also in a positive way, it's been there for me when I just want to express my happiness. It has been the one thing that I will love above almost any other thing. I love, I, I, I want you to understand, I love my children. I love my children so much. And my children are a part of me. They've been part of me now for the last four or five years, my youngest. But for 50 years now, 54 years, I've been attached to art. That is my, that is my mistress. That is my lover. That is my rock. That is the things that I could always go to that no matter what happened to me, I could always count on her. I could always count on art. And so 
I, I respect that now. I didn't when I was younger. I think I did never respected my art and never took my art serious because everything else came so easy. And you know, if you have straight hair, you'd love to have curly hair. And if you have dark eyes, you'd love to have blue eyes. And you know, if you know, it's people always want what they what they don't have, or they always want to be somebody else. And and also because it was a gift. If I give my my oldest daughter Maddie, if I give her a hundred dollar bill and she didn't earn it, it's, it means nothing to her. She'll go and she'll blow it. But if she has to work all week long waitressing to make a hundred bucks, mm -hmm. she's going to treat that hundred dollars a lot different. Plus, Uncle Sam's going to come in and take his twenty percent. She's, oh my gosh, what are these taxes? Like, <laughs> Welcome to the real world, you know. But but for me, art has always been my go-to. It's always been my go-to, and it is something that I think I don't know if it's this way for every artist. But my dream is to take the culmination of all of my talents, of everything I've ever learned, everything that you know is where I'm at now, and reaching beyond and going 120 percent and creating the perfect painting, the best painting that I've ever created. And I can tell you through Park West because of that drive that I have right now and because of the competitiveness and all of these things that are going on and and again going back to this accident realizing that time is is limited that I really want to make everything I have count and it's not so much about you know whether you know I sell enough paintings to pay my rent next month it's about like listen what am I going to do as my epitaph what am I gonna? What am I going to create where people can really see what did he? What did he do? What did he? What was he really about? What makes him? What makes this particular painting any better than anything else? And I think sometimes you can do it accidentally. Sometimes you know, if you're a golfer, you can make the perfect swing, and everything feels everything feels like it's all the stars have aligned, you know, and and the world is your oyster, and it was everything went just perfect. The weather was right. All things add up to make this beautiful thing happen, which, you know, and I believe in that. I believe some of that is, you know, destiny or whatever. And, um, and with the art, it's the, it's the same way. I want to create the ultimate painting. I want to do something that people could say, look at, this is what da Vinci did. This is what Goddard did. They're completely different, but do you see the resemblance? Do you see the math going into the ball? Do you see the thought process that's going into it? I'm no da Vinci. I mean, da Vinci's IQ is probably way higher than mine. But, but not probably, it was. <laughs> but I'm just saying that, you know, to, 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 to take, uh, it's, it's like, I, I, I love, I love uh, physics and I love uh, the quantum world and things like that. And, you know, photons come from nothing and just suddenly appear from nowhere. Art is the same way. You take something that was nothing and from, from, from nothing at all, you create something. And everything we see in our life, this was uh, something that, that Yanni said, that, that musician. And he said, everything that you see in life all started with just a simple thought. But you have to take action and make it into something. And I think there's people that have talents. I have two people, three people in my family that have photographic memories. And I ask them, I go, how does this process work for you? And they say, well, I don't just glance at something and then it's memorized. I have to actually read it. I have to decipher. I have to digest it a little bit. And, um, but if they don't use that talent, it's, it's worthless. And if, like with my art, even though I had done it most of my life, I never, I took it for granted. I just said, oh, this is something I do. Okay, I draw little things for friends and, you know, whatever. 
instead of saying, hey, listen, this is what separates me from everyone else. Maybe maybe I was given a gift on purpose. Maybe I'm really supposed to do something with this mm-hmm. instead of just, you know, brushing it off as just another thing that I do, just like music or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I tried to be an athlete. I really, really tried. And I'd work out all summer to, so I could come back for, you know, track and, and, and you know, make it in the, you know, top 25. <laughs> and I, I did horrible at it. But art I could do without blinking. But then it was like, okay, here you go. Here you, you have, a, say, Michael Phelps. You got this perfect gene pool and the perfect DNA to be the greatest swimmer. To the potential. But that's all it is, potential. Yeah. You don't get a free ride. You have to, you know, you have to, um, you, uh, you, you, have to you have to do it. You got to roll up your sleeves. Yeah. And I also think, and, and, and going back to the, our very first thing that we talked about, which was my childhood, one thing that I truly believe is, and, and I don't know why this is, I do believe that having, going through uh, turmoil and, and, and drama and having to make sacrifice in your life and, and being somewhat tormented really gives you the drive or the hunger to do something more. And I've told some of my friends that are very famous musicians and they say, what do you think of this? I go, you know what? And, and they go through like their, their thing with depression. I mean, I was, I was friends with Chris Cornell, who committed suicide. Right. And I just thought, man, he, to me, he had probably one of the greatest voices in all of music. But, you know, he had his own demons. It was like just him against himself. And I tell some of my, my musician friends, I go, you know, the best songs you ever wrote were when you were the most tormented. We know Van Gogh was a tormented soul, and a lot of them were. Rembrandt had his financial problems. All of them had to go through something, and I've had my I've had my share of demons, man. And I think to myself, more like seriously, if I hadn't have had all those, if I don't, if I didn't still carry all those demons with me today, I would not be so driven as I am now to do to to rise above, to you know. And if it wasn't for my insecurity, and still today, it's not. I'm not afraid. It's not that I want success so bad. I could really care less. I've been on top of the mountain at the bottom of the mountain, but I'm so afraid of failing. Like what's going to happen if something happens to me tomorrow? What's going to happen to my children? And what are they going to do without without their father? And what what legacy am I going to leave them? Forget the rest of the world cuz that's all really nice, but you know, but what about the people that really matter? And and what happens to me is when I get on a cruise ship like I do this weekend and I get up and I speak in front of people and Leanne will always have to tell me this, this, this happens every time I get ready to go on stage to talk to people, nervousness comes about. And I think to myself, this doesn't make any sense. I have done this a thousand times. I've been on 200 television shows. Why on earth would I be nervous? And I think to myself because it goes right back to those insecurities and those insecurities drive me to be a better me, and then after I'm, I'm talking for 10 minutes, I find my groove and I'm all good. But I still go through that anxiety all the time, not because I'm, I'm, you know, I'm super confident, think I'm just gonna do great. I, I'm, I'm really insecure thinking, what if I go out there and these people think I'm horrible? You know what I mean? What do these people just automatically think because I have long hair and I have tattoos that, you know, I use drugs or that I'm, you know, a, a loser or I'm, you know, some kind of guy who probably belongs in prison. So the best thing for me is after a show is over, when 
people come up to me and they you know, it might be this old lady who's, you know, in her 70s. She goes, you know, I have a grandson that looks like you and I never thought I'd talk to anybody like you, but I just love it. Or somebody that says, I ne- I've been seeing your olives for 12 years. I never understood what they were, but spending one weekend with you, there's no way I'm going to leave this weekend without buying one of your pieces of art. Or someone saying to me, listen, I've struggled with alcohol for 10 years. I'm buying a piece of alcohol painting and I've, you know, I'm committed to never having another drink in my life. Right. It's having that sort of a thing, or someone wrote to me, uh, actually yesterday, I just got an email last night through Facebook, and the client wrote to me and said, Michael Goddard, I have to tell you about your Dragonfly series. Now, I did the Dragonfly at the very, very beginning of my career, and he said, I lost my mother, and it was the worst thing possible. It came all of a sudden, I didn't understand what was happening, and he goes, I've always been a really faithful man and always, you know, looked up to, to God to, to guide me through my life. And I did. I was so angry at him for taking my, my mother. And I just wanted to know that my mother was in heaven and in a good place. And he says, I went to the corner of, you know, where I was working and I started crying. And I said, God, you know, I've never asked you for anything, but if you could just show me a big blue dragonfly, then I would know that my mother's still around. Well, I guess... He he, the, you know, he totally forgotten about it. And about a week later, he sees this thing buzzing around and goes over to the corner. And he says, he told me this this morning. This is when I got the email this morning that a blue dragonfly stopped right in front of him. He looked straight into the eyes and just started crying. And then the dragonfly took off. He says he chased the dragonfly outside of the shop, chasing it. And he goes, you know, I I that dragonfly has always meant my mother to me. And he goes, and I saw this exact same big blue dragonfly in a painting you did when you used to paint your daughters and do fantasy art. And he goes, and from that day forward, I wanted to let you know that I have I have dragonfly one. I'm looking for dragonfly two. You know, there's always the search of trying to find the old stuff. And uh, he said, but you, you have no idea what that meant to me. And I that's one of the things I love about music. One of the things I love about art is that... You don't really, you don't really realize uh, the impact you have on strangers until you actually get to meet them. Right. And so many of these people, like uh, even yesterday, you know, a big part of my life is the philanthropy and, and cancer and all that. And you know, every time I do a show, I, I you know, I'm thinking, okay, here we go. I'm gonna have to share about you know my drama. And then afterwards, yeah, my daughter and and you know, and, and then people will come to me and they say, you know, I just got diagnosed with prostate cancer a week ago and you gave me hope or I'm a cancer survivor and now I get it. And Or they lost somebody. Or, or they lost yeah. somebody, yeah. you know. I mean, what do you what do you say to someone who who, who tells you, look, I, we just lost our child like two months ago and you're like, oh my God, like, I don't want to know that. Like, I want to run away. And they say, but you put a smile on our face and we knew there was some reason why we were coming to this. All we were trying to do was just be a normal family again and try and recover from this. And all, you know, Park West invited us to come out to this. And we're like, we do, neither one of us felt like going, but we ended up coming. And then we run into you, and then you inspired us. And I think, my gosh, I'm not trying to do that. And I don't even think it is, has anything to do with me. I think it has to do with all of my ideas and all the things that come from me. I am simply just a messenger. I am the vessel that, you know, that God has chosen to do these crazy olives and things like that. The same way, you know, that, that God, you know, touched, touched, the, the, touched the hand of my Michelangelo and, and did great things that will last in eternity. And I'm not I'm not comparing myself to Michelangelo. I'm just saying that on a smaller level, those things still happen to me today. And I could be anywhere in the world and have somebody come up to me and goes, you don't understand what a difference you made in my life. And I'll just be like, what did I do? Well, you know, you painted this painting. I'll be like, okay. <laughs> so, you know, and, you know, I sort of dismiss it. But um, 
but I, I, you know, once in a while I, I, I stop and I think about my life and just because of like this accident, I'm thinking about my life, thinking, okay, what am I doing? Where am I going next? And, and what have I done so far? First, you think about what you've already done. Then you think about where you should be. And then you have to make the decision, where do I go next? And for me, the biggest motivator, if your bank account's a little bit low, you have to have that, you have to get a little bit of anxiety in order for you to go out and take action. Mm -hmm. So. I, I could not live without the anxiety. It is a blessing, <laughs> if that makes sense. Goes all the way back yeah. to your childhood. Goes all the way back to the childhood. Yeah. But that, yeah. but that's the drive. I mean, yeah. that's the thing that you know. Some of the greatest love songs were written in twenty minutes. Yeah. You know, but they were someone who just was left devastated with a broken heart. Yeah. And you know, I mean, and I think that everyone's broken in some way. But you find your way back by listening to your your in, in, intuition and by listening to your heart and by doing the things that you know you should do you just have to admit that this is this is what it is yeah. you know well, when we deny those things i think we're in trouble i think you're really blessed to have found uh the pathway and yeah. the lifeline and to your 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 life and, and your art has brought so so much pleasure to so many people you know all over the world so uh that's a true blessing and you don't know how it's going to be in a uh, hundred years or 200 nope. years or 500 I, years. i probably will never know you might be, I get cryogenically frozen yeah, yeah, <laughs> you, you you might end up being in uh, michelangelo you don't yeah, know you, you never know, know. You, never you never know, know. you never know well thanks michael for yeah. uh spending time this is really great i know that uh, a lot of your fans and people that collect your work are going to really uh, treasure this this conversation and uh, have an opportunity to learn more about you as a person. Um, if you're not familiar with Michael's art, make sure you jump on the Parkwest website at parkwestgallery.com or check out Michael's website as well, which is michaelgoddard.com. Yep, michaelgoddard.com. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much, Maury. And I, I truly appreciate uh, uh, everything uh, that you do. And, you know, Maury's so, so knowledgeable. Um, I, I love that. I think to really to understand anything, you have to sort of have the, the foundation. And uh, so coming from you, when you critique my art, it's a lot different than, you know, some guy off the street going, oh, those are really cool frogs. <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, I mean, those you, are, you, you see everything. Those are olives, not frogs. Yes, those are olives, not frogs. <laughs> Thank you, Maury. All right, man. All right. Be well. Thank you for listening to Park West Galleries Behind the Artist. To learn more about Parkwest Gallery's family of artists, visit us online at parkwestgallery.com or follow us on social media. You can subscribe to Behind the Artist on your favourite podcast app and be sure to rate and review the podcast on iTunes.